This is a CBC Podcast. So, I don't know about you guys, but it seems like the older I get, the longer my to-do list becomes, which means lots of chores. Like taking out the bins to the curb every single week. Not my favorite thing. And I'm not going to lie, I'm usually half asleep while I'm doing it. It's probably fair to say that the people who collect it are actually doing all the hard work. It's quite impressive when you think about it. I put the bins out, and the next morning, the garbage truck comes and poof, the garbage vanishes. It's like a tooth fairy, but only for trash. But you know the other thing about getting older? You come to realize that sometimes life's just not that simple. This waste, all the stuff we throw away every day, it's got to go somewhere, right? I mean, I know our trash goes to a landfill where it'll take hundreds of years to decompose. And I don't really like thinking about that. But what about my recycling? I know the idea of recycling is to take used materials and turn them into new things we can use again. Like, I've heard about shoes and clothes that have been made from recycled plastic bottles. Great. But how does that waste in my blue bin get transformed into this new cool stuff? And as I started to think about this, I did a little research on the old internet library. And guess what? Only 60% of what Canadians put in the blue bin actually gets recycled. And... Only 9% of plastic waste in Canada gets recycled at all. And the rest of that stuff that doesn't make it will get landfilled or incinerated. So if we've decided to do this recycling thing, why is nearly half the blue bin still getting sent to the dump? And why are we even making and using materials that can't be recycled anyway? What can we do so that our junk isn't just polluting the planet? Ty Asks Why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you really want to have answered. What can I do when I'm anxious? Can we keep eating meat without destroying the planet? Why is math so hard to love? What will money look like in the future? And how do we fix recycling? A lot of what we're going to be talking about in this episode is about residential recycling, or what regular Joes like yous and me's do. Recycling is also really specific. The rules where I live might not be true for where you live, so some details we mention might not apply to you. So I'm going to be real with you guys. I'm pretty awful at recycling. Okay, okay, I can feel your judgment from across the airwaves. But it's confusing, is it not? Like, you can recycle paper, but not if it's shiny or waxy. Sometimes you can recycle plastic, but not always. A jam jar can go in the blue bin, but only if you wash it out. Honestly, sometimes when I'm not sure, I just toss it all in the trash. 
I wonder if my friends understand it better than I do. I still don't know. Because it's different in different areas, too, of, like, this plastic can be recycled, but not if it's touched food. And this plastic can be recycled unless it's this color. Like, what does the color have to do with anything? You can't recycle black plastic, I think, because the machines can't read or something like that. I don't Finn's strategy is the total opposite of mine. I just think, for me, if it looks like it can be recycled... I'm going to throw it into the recycling bin. I guess that's not really a good idea. But like, yeah, no, I'm kind of like Finn. Oh, like a that's bottle. Oh, that looks like it can be recycled. That's they could like turn it into something. I try to check for like the little recycle yeah. sign. The thing is, it's confusing. Just because it has the recycling sign doesn't actually mean it can be recycled. It just means the kind of plastic that it is. Okay, well, I am completely <laughs> clueless about that. Like, Obviously, none of us know what we're doing, but... We're not the only ones. Are you are you a very good recycler? I'm going to be honest. The answer is no. Um, and so, much like everybody else, I kind of struggle with identifying what certain plastics are. And so, um, I drink a lot of those pre-made protein shakes and, and little bottles. And I, I often just throw them in the back of my car seat. And so, every month or so, I'll go put them all in. And then I'm like, does my municipality accept this? That's Dr. Calvin Lacan, or Cal. He's a research scientist at York University. I like to often characterize myself as I'm a garbage man, in the sense that my research is specifically devoted to waste management. Okay, so my family will set out the blue bin on the curb, right? And then in the morning, it gets taken away by the garbage truck. Could you tell me what actually happens when it's carted off? It goes to what they call a material recycling facility. We just call it MRF. And a MRF is basically a giant sorting center. They have a number of uh, pieces of equipment that can help sort various types of plastic, that can help sort metals uh, and newsprint products. And at the very end, it gets baled into these giant cubes. It's really cool to see, you know, one ton of baled aluminum in a giant cube that we're going to ship 6,000 kilometers to another country because they're willing to buy it from us. After the materials are sorted and squeezed into giant cubes, they get purchased by people who want the material, just like any other merchandise. It might be a company in your country or someone very far away. Then the buyer will figure out how to use the material, like turn them into new bottles or even engineer clothes and gadgets from old trash. But not all trash cubes are created equal. So when we think about paper, Even if we recycle paper perfectly, about 20% is just lost in the reprocessing component of recycling. Whereas with something like aluminum or steel, you can recycle it again and again and again. You also have a lot of plastic materials that are enormously difficult to recycle from a technical perspective. And oftentimes it's enormously costly. So when we talk about materials, what's a a good recyclable material versus a bad recyclable material, we can actually rank all 23 materials we include in the blue box. And I think a lot of people would be very surprised when they find out that glass recycling is actually worse for the environment than, um, than actually just manufacturing glass. That's crazy. It's easier to manufacture new glass bottles than recycle old ones. Honestly, I have a feeling that recycling is just too complicated for some people to think about doing right. I feel that way sometimes, even though it's something I know I should do, and it's kind of drilled into you from a young age at school. But Cal says that there are some challenges to making recycling make sense to everyone. 
So everybody knows the Mobius loop, the three little arrows that kind of symbolize recycling. And we assume that that's a universal message. Um, but we had conducted research into, say, do immigrants recognize the symbol? And more than 60% of new Canadians had never seen that symbol before. They did not associate it with recycling. If you don't come from a country that has recycling, it is a completely foreign and oftentimes um, even negative concept to some people. It makes sense. I mean, say you come from a place where you burned all your trash or it all got taken to a landfill. You probably would think it's pretty odd that your city's asking you to clean and sort your garbage, right? Why go through all the fuss? If not everyone knows the why behind recycling, it's unlikely they'll want to work hard on doing it properly. Another reason why recycling is challenging is because of contamination. Food contamination ruins a significant percentage of the paper fiber that we recycle. So if you think of your, uh, your blue bin or your blue cart, all it takes is somebody to throw in a uh, half full can of pop to ruin all of the newspaper within that bin. And there's no way to recover from that. The only option you have is landfilling at that point. Also, a lot of materials that people throw in the recycling bin just can't be recycled. Sorry to put you on blast, Finn, but when people aren't sure about the recycling and throw things in the blue box just in case, that's called wish cycling. And when things that don't belong end up at the sorting center, that actually makes the process more difficult. But then again, why do materials that can't be recycled even get made in the first place? There's got to be options. So I asked Cal about this. Shouldn't companies just use less plastic? Or if they have to, why don't they just use the type of plastic that can be recycled? So a lot of the times when you see, you know, uh, packaging, it minimizes the chance of it breaking or it getting contaminated or getting tampered with. So there are just some very practical considerations where we don't have a readily available substitute. So you kind of have to are forced to use a lot of these plastics by default. Does the system need simplifying or something like that? Like who's make who's making the decisions about how we recycle in the first place? So that's actually a really interesting question and a very topical one. So up until very, very recently, the municipality was kind of responsible for service delivery, meaning they sent out the trucks, they collected the material, they owned the sorting center. But we're moving towards something called producer responsibility, wherein the person who makes the product is physically and financially responsible for managing it, doing all the things that are necessary to keep this material out of landfill. This idea is called Extended Producer Responsibility, or EPR. Cal tells me this is happening all around the world, including where I am in Canada. For example, in Ontario, the responsibility of recycling will be transferred to producers starting the summer of 2023. This means that residents aren't paying for their recycling in their utility bills. Now the cost and responsibility of recycling will be on the companies that make the products and packaging. This actually will incentivize the companies to figure out how to make products that are more recyclable, because it'll save them money. Getting the manufacturer to pay is a pretty neat idea, but how will it actually work? Turns out there's a country that's adopted EPR, and they've got some really unique ways of dealing with their waste. Compared to someone in North America, Taiwan's waste management system feels pretty alien. 
This is Nate Maynard. I'm a sustainability consultant and environmental researcher based in Taiwan. I work for a company called Reset Carbon, and I also have a podcast called Waste Not, Why Not? The sustainability science show where we try and find the right way to solve environmental problems. Taiwan is a small island with not a lot of room, so its people have to get pretty creative with their garbage. When I first came to Taiwan about eight years ago, I was struck by the fact that there were no, almost no public trash cans. And I began to ask people why this was the case, because there was also no litter. And it became clear that Taiwan had experienced a major recycling success. But this was not always the case. Around 30 years ago, Taiwan only had a 70% waste collection rate. So that meant that three out of 10 pieces of trash were going into the environment or just somewhere they're not supposed to go. And the waste that was going where it was supposed to go was going to landfill. And so the government kept building more and more landfills to try and keep up with Taiwan's growing economy and the growing waste problem. However, once Taiwan had democracy and the freedom of protest, people began to protest against all these new landfills as they were appearing next to their homes and in their villages. When people started to protest, things really began to change. Taiwan started to recycle with the producer responsibility model. In general, Taiwan tends to target either institutions or co large corporations or any, any, anyone big and somewhat well-funded instead of applying the laws equally. And what I mean by that is if you look at the new legislation on single-use cutlery bans and straw bans, they don't actually apply to night markets or to small tea shops. By forcing grocery stores, uh, large restaurant chains, government institutions, schools, large corporations, by forcing them to do the straw ban first, they're going to develop alternative materials for straws. They're going to develop alternative packaging lines. They're going to develop biodegradable plastics. And as they develop those, the price will go down and make it more accessible. So when those laws then trickle down to people who typically have lower margins or lower budgets for sustainability, like night market stalls, this will make it easier for them. So by placing the responsibility on the biggest producers to get it together, it made it easier for smaller places to make and distribute more sustainable materials. Soon, it means the whole country is invested in making recycling work, and that's a lot easier than a small group of people trying to get others to care about sustainability. Nate told me that there's also other strategies that government has used to get residents to recycle more, sort more, and landfill less. So you sit inside your house and you wait for Beethoven music to play from the local garbage truck. And then you walk outside with your pre-sorted recycling. Ideally, you've also washed it as well. You have a separate bag for your food waste and you have a trash bag full of your non-recyclable, non-compostable waste that you purchased at a 7-Eleven or a convenience or grocery store. So that alone is a lot more work than I think a lot of North Americans are used to in dealing with their waste. But uh, the whole process is very uniquely Taiwanese. When I first came to Taiwan, I saw an elderly couple washing styrofoam meat trays and stacking them for uh, processing and, and throwing them out. I've never seen anything like that in the U.S. Not everyone in Taiwan is as into spending that much time on their trash. But Nate says that there's a sense that the general public agrees that waste is something worth paying attention to. 
This has to do with how bad the trash situation was in the 90s, but also because of cultural beliefs. I mean, even the Buddhists protested about too much garbage. It sounds strange, but they played a, a major force in developing recycling policies. I don't want it to sound like the reason that Taiwan has recycling is because of Buddhism. That's not the case. Taiwan is a, is a pretty spiritually diverse place. Although there is something to be said of when a large group of people are all recycling as part of their religious belief. And it kind of becomes this, you know, positive feedback loop of reinforcement. You see people around you recycling, you hear people talking about it, and it starts to become more actionable. When you see people in your community getting into recycling and they're invested in doing it right, it makes you want to do it too. Call it peer pressure or positive reinforcement, whatever you want. It works. And this community effect is not only working in Taiwan, but we're seeing it work in some places in Canada too. Hi, uh, my name is Olivia Kwok. I am the supervisor of waste and diversion programs with the city of St. Albert. Uh, we're about 66,000 people servicing about 20,000 households. We're just outside of Edmonton region. Olivia's team runs a project called the Curbside Waste Education Program. It's kind of a fancy way to say that they go through people's garbage. That's when our uh, education team will actually visit households on the morning of their collection day. And we'll actually kind of look and see how they're doing on sorting and setting out their waste. When there's a person actually judging your junk, instead of just getting it anonymously taken away and combined with everyone else's stuff, it can give you an opportunity to learn what you're doing wrong or what you're doing right. Olivia's team has a sticker system for this. One um, sticker that we have is called the Oops, What Goes Where? And we would stick that either on the recycling or the organics. Um, so what happens on these stickers is that it has various checkboxes about um, common errors and mistakes that we see in our recycling or organics program. So if we go out and check a household's recycling and there's items that don't belong inside, such as plastic bags, uh, there's toys inside, there's clothes, or there's garbage, we'll actually sticker the bag, check off the information to let the resident know what was wrong, and then we'll leave the bag behind. That way they can see where the error is, they'll correct it, and then they can resort the bag for the next week. If a resident sets out um, their garbage, organics, and recycling properly, meaning it's sorted correctly, and it is spaced out at the curb properly, um, we recognize them with a Your Waste Wise sticker. We do that because it's important as much as it is to let people know when there's an error or if something's wrong, um, that we actually let the folks who are doing a great job know um, because then they can you know, be proud of their efforts for what they've done to help with our recycling programs. And also they become kind of champions of our program. So then their neighbors may um, you know, ask them for tips and suggestions or you know, say, how did you get that sticker? Um, so we create that type of um, community so that people can help each other out. Olivia says she loves talking trash and getting other people to do it too. And it's been cool for the residents to meet the people who work with and deal with their garbage. 
So since 2017, um, we've been to 19,178 houses. So we've almost finished visiting all of our residents. Um, we really enjoy that opportunity to help, you know, give them tips and suggestions. Um, people really appreciate that opportunity to ask um, on the spot. St. Albert is a small city, but Olivia says its waste program can be replicated in all kinds of communities, big or small. It's mainly about focusing what is the goal that you want out of it. Do you want residents to sort better? Do you want them to learn how to set things out properly? Do you want them to learn about what happens to their waste and where it goes once it leaves the curb? You know, having the staff, the tools, the resources to communicate about waste and proper sorting and set out does have a cost to it, but also um, there's a cost to not doing it properly. There's obviously no magical solution to the recycling problem, but it's pretty inspiring to see how the determination of a country like Taiwan or a community like St. Albert can go a long way, especially when everyone works together to achieve a common goal. But the other side of this is just all the waste that's still being created. Like, even if we fix the recycling problem, there will still be pieces of plastic and textile that fall through the cracks, and the landfills will keep growing. What if fixing recycling doesn't actually fix the waste problem? Cal, the research scientist, has something interesting to say about that. We're very focused on this recycling conversation, but waste reduction and reuse is actually preferred to recycling. It's actually the waste management hierarchy. And so what I think we really need to do and what we fail to do is educate consumers about how do we minimize the quantities of waste that we generate and how do we increase opportunities for reuse so that we're not just drinking a single use plastic water bottle and putting it in the blue bin. Should that even exist in the first place when we have reusable alternatives? Right. It's pretty easy to forget that the recycle symbol is actually a triangle. There's infrastructure that's actually set up for recycling, so it's easier to do. But really, we don't talk about the other two parts of the triangle as much, reducing and reusing. It turns out there's also people working towards making those things easier. We are running out of space basically to dispose um, garbage in the region. It's difficult. That's Andrea McKenzie. She's a zero waste project engineer with the city of Vancouver. She works on reducing single use waste and projects that get people to share, reuse, and repair. We're interested in growing a circular economy in Vancouver. And so moving away from a take, make, dispose um, system to something where we conserve resources and put them to good use. The idea is that we can conserve resources and mimic natural cycles instead of extracting resources and creating products that we need to use and then throwing them away, keep them in circulation. Recycling is part of it, but it's also about extending the life cycle of items by keeping them in use for longer. So instead of maybe just one person owning something and then throwing it away, maybe it's shared by many people or when one person's done with it, there's a system for it to be reused again by somebody else. So Andrea is working on projects that can help create a circular economy in Vancouver, which is part of the city's Zero Waste 2040 plan. Part of the plan includes bylaws that reduce single-use items like takeout containers, straws, and shopping bags. 
plastic bags were recently banned in Vancouver. We've grown really used to a, a throwaway culture of convenience and disposability. And now we're asking people to think more about the stuff that comes into their hands and, and think about what to do with that when they're done with it. And so in the case of a reusable shopping bag, we're saying instead of throwing it away or using it as a garbage bag, hold on to it and wash it and remember to take it with you. Now, do you see this kind of change applying to everything? So like, eventually I'm going to have to carry around like a reusable bag and then my reusable bag has like a reusable bottle. And with my reusable bottle, of course, will be my reusable straw. We'll be carrying a bunch of these mishmash things just so we can have any of them be reused at any time. Just like we all have a different kind of fashion and style that we like to wear, I think everyone is going to find the thing that works best for them. Like I'm very attached to my reusable bag and my reusable coffee mug. But other people, they just maybe still want the level of convenience that they're used to with a single-use bag um, or a single-use coffee cup. And so then we also need business models um, like called cup share or bag share programs where you can get your beverage to go in a reusable cup and take it with you. And then you can drop it off again, the empty cup, when you're done with it and it will be cleaned and used again. I kind of like the thought. Like I would get like one of those backpacks that have like a million pockets and I could just store a bunch of little like containers and all these sort of pockets and it's like oh sorry I'll be taking this meal for takeout and I just like I reach over over my shoulder and I just grab like pocket number 13 and boom it's a takeout container that I just unfold. Yeah I love that and then that takeout container is like your takeout container and you like the style and you like the color and you know it's the right size and your backpack is made from uh, reclaimed textiles that were diverted from landfill through a reuse program. Like, I love that whole scenario. <laughs> I could see our lives looking really different if we defaulted to repairing things instead of replacing them. You'd have these repair workshops where people can teach each other skills, like how to make a bag out of old t-shirts or something like that. That's pretty neat, and Andrea says in her work, she talks to people all the time about reducing and reusing, and they're really into the idea. I think people really are excited about ways to reduce their waste, but on the flip side of that, it's, it's hard. And um, you hear people say, I think, sometimes that, oh, people are lazy and they just, they just want to throw stuff away. I don't know if it's that people are lazy. I think people are very busy <laughs> and our modern lives are incredibly full and we have a lot on our plate. So we need to find ways to make it easy for people and, and make it fit into their day-to-day -day lives without being a time burden. Yeah. So that's another question I have. Wouldn't all of this become a lot of work? Like it might stop me from doing some of the things I enjoy if I'm paying so much attention to my waste footprint? Maybe at first for some activities, but I don't think that it should cut out the number of things you could do that you might enjoy. And in fact, it could lead to doing them in ways that are even more fun. So um, I'm thinking of the example of like a tool library or a maker space where you can go and have access to all kinds of equipment and tools and machines for making things. So there becomes more of a social and community element to it. 
I love the secondhand economy for this reason because I find it will just always provide, even for the weirdest things. You know that phrase, one person's trash is another person's treasure? So come to think of it, if we can give the waste in our lives a second life by reusing it, repurposing it, or recycling it, maybe nothing is actually just worthless garbage. Nate, the researcher working in Taiwan, sees it this way. In, in my mind, there's no such thing as waste. Um, a plastic bottle used to be oil, which used to be a natural habitat, maybe somewhere in the Arctic, and before that it was plankton. Everything was something else before it entered into our lives. And I think if we can apply that same view towards waste and recycling, then we could have a lot more sustainable of a, of a world. If you think about it, all of the atoms that we interact with have existed for millions and trillions of years. The new stuff in our lives and the things we consider garbage all used to be something else. And us humans, we are the ones who decide certain things are no longer useful and send it off so we never have to think about it again. There's a version of the future in my head, and it kind of looks like the world in the movie WALL-E, where the Earth is just covered in all of the waste that we've created. But after talking to these recycling experts, I see another version, where we learn how to repurpose the things we call junk, and we all wear really big cargo pants. I'd pop open pocket number 15 and voila, my favorite cup with a straw. That sounds pretty sweet. Ty asked why. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. The show is produced by Judy D. Gu, Eunice Kim, and Rachel Levy McLaughlin. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Graham McDonald is our sound designer, and the theme music is by Johnny Spence. SK Robert is our digital producer. Special thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his audio magic, and my friends Maylin, Piper, Finn, and Caden for talking trash with me. Our sound engineers are my mom, Nikki Poole, and my dad, Min Nguyen. Today, my guests were Calvin Lacan, Olivia Kwok, Nate Maynard, and Andrea McKenzie. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.